I'm a travel influencer from the south side of Chicago. Worldwide, Nate. Now I've traveled from Chicago, Chicago to, to the Congo, Congo, visiting over 60 countries across six continents. Who that? Welcome to Escape with Nate, the, the podcast, podcast that travels. Hotels, airlines, dental offices, and hair salons are a few businesses starting to charge customers a COVID-19 surcharge for doing business with them. That is the new normal. Welcome to Escape with Nate, the podcast that travels. Joining me today will be the amazing, multi-skilled adventurer and travel channel star, Kelly Edwards. I'm your host, Nate Flewellen. Let's travel the world together. Come on, Escape with Nate. Your attention, please. Flight 103 to Tel Aviv is now boarding. I am thrilled to have on the show today the most interesting woman in the world, according to Outside Magazine. She's a pilot, certified scuba diver, mountain adventurer, spokesperson for the Ford Explorer, and the first black woman to host a TV show on the travel channel, Mysterious Islands, my sister from another mister. Welcome to the show, Kelly Edwards. Yes, I love that intro. Thank you, Nate. Oh, you, you made me feel special. You know, you got to give people their roses. <laughs> Well, I'm still learning stuff about you. I mean, we've known each other since 2013 when we met at TBEX in Toronto, and it's never been a dull moment. <laughs> Don't tell him too much, Nate. Jesus. I won't, I won't. But, you know, it's interesting. I did this interview last week, and besides my mother, I was asked who was my favorite travel partner. And then I said, oh, Kelly Edwards. Yes. So why do you think you are a great travel partner? Oh, that's easy. I'm a great travel partner because I'm about that life. I'm up for anything. I mean, if you want to do a tough adventure, you know that that's my specialty. If you want to lay up in a cabana and drink mimosas with a butler, I'm down for that life too. So I'm very adaptable. Um, but I will say that I'm really good at bringing people outside of their comfort zone. So if you thought a trip was going to be a certain way, once you tack Kelly Edwards on it, there's definitely going to be some new life experiences happening. That's pretty cool. Like, who have you taken on a trip who thought it was going to be one thing, but experienced the Kelly Set Go lifestyle? Every boyfriend I've ever had, <laughs> for, for one. Um, my mom and my best friend. Um, I can say, just I'll just start with, like, I'll say with the men. For me, because I'm such an adventurer, usually that's a role that's taken on, you know, by men. You know, you think of adventure, you think of like the guy with the chiseled jaw, like looking off the side of Mount Everest and he looks a certain way. So then you have me and my little squeaky voice, my little five foot three self coming along, doing all the crazy stuff. The boyfriends have been like, you want me to do what? And I'm like, yeah, like you, you can do that, right? No, not a big deal. And they're like, oh. So I think it's become a thing where you know, some egos get involved. Like, well, if her little butt can do it, um, I dang sure better be able to do it. And the problem is they don't know how to do it. So sometimes they get themselves in situations that I got to bail them out of, um, which is fun. I'll take a person who doesn't know how to swim, which has happened, to scuba diving in less than a week in the ocean, like hardcore. And so I think when people go with me, they know that I'm adventurous, but they don't think it will spill over into their life. And by the end of the trip, it definitely will. Same thing with my best friend, you know, she had never swam in the ocean before and we just went snorkeling and, you know, to jump in the ocean for the first time is very overwhelming. And what was positive about that with her is that even though she wasn't really comfortable in the ocean, she really owned that space. 
And when she went with her family, she had her mom and dad in the ocean, which they didn't really do. So it was like a trickle down effect. So I think, you know, with me deciding to be adventurous and encouraging to my friends and family that in turn, they do that with their friends and family. So it's been a really neat domino effect. And my mom, you know, she got her passport at, I want to say maybe 47 years old. And I took my mom out of the country for the very first time. And we went to Belize, we went to Ireland to give my mom that experience of leaving the country for the first time. And the reason why she got a passport is because her daughter is a world traveler was really, really amazing. And that was a gift and a curse because my mom to this day is on me about taking her somewhere again. You're the one that made me get that passport. I got two years left. I'll renew it, but where are we going? And I'm like, oh my gosh, I've awakened a beast. Oh, you're not alone. My mother does the same thing. So she's always bugging me about the next <laughs> trip. So, but I, but I enjoy traveling with my mother. But, but it sounds like that the, you push people to their limit, but the common denominator is that you have the skill to inspire them to get to the finish line. You guys yes, always get to the finish line you. together. Absolutely, absolutely. Because I'm not, I'm that person, no man or woman left behind. Like, we're going to do it all the way through. I don't care if it takes something that I would do normally quick, triple the time. If someone else is involved, I want you to be comfortable while you're doing it. I'm never going to put anyone in a position where they feel like their life is in danger. They will know that I'm there every step of the way. I have held grown men's hands in the ocean. I have, you know, encouraged them climbing mountains. I have, you know, flown people in small planes where they're white knuckled because they're so afraid of being in a small plane. So I'm definitely going to make sure that you have the uh, not only me encouraging you, but a support system and also knowing if something gets hairy, that I have the skills to make sure that you're okay. I, I'm an excellent swimmer. You know, I'm pretty strong. Um, I know if I lose an engine on a plane, how to put that sucker down without having an engine. And so I always make sure that whatever I involve people in, that if I'm the only one that can get them out of the situation, that make sure I have the skills to do so, so that no one takes any or anything happens to them on my watch. I, I don't allow that to happen on my watch. And that's why I also got my wilderness first aid certification because I feel like it's very important if you're out in these remote places, if somebody you know falls into a ravine or breaks an ankle or an arm or something like that or passes out, that I um, can keep you alive until real help gets there, you know? So all that's really important to me. Right, start together, you finish together. Exactly. You make people comfortable when you're out in the world. So how have you been dealing with the shelter in place? Oh, well, for me. Have you felt, you felt isolated or you felt connected? So there, I, first of all, I'm an only child, right? And so I grew up playing by myself, being by myself majority of the time when I wasn't in school. And so I'm used to being out in the world and navigating it alone. I think the part that I miss is being able to meet the new people, go to the new places and experience the new things. All of that is on pause. So I personally don't feel like I've been affected tremendously about the isolation part. I do miss the human connection with, you know, friends and family like normal, but I also miss, I'm always chasing the unknown in the world in a controlled semi-atmosphere this is uncontrollable it's a global pandemic and who knows when i'll be able to have those unique interactions with people before that i did 
prior to this happening. And so that's the part that's been a little disheartening, but guess I'll just be finding out about new places and people right here in the States. That is put on pause. Like you said, the, the new, the new adventure, the new discovery. So now that we're at home, staying in place, we have to like rely on the nostalgia of previous trips. So I would like to talk about a previous experience that you had that was, that was epic. Absolutely. Tell me about like one of your previous like adventures. Oh man. Well, sure, sure. Well, I've, I've definitely had many, but one that really sticks out to me is a road trip that I took in Israel. And I believe this was in 2011 or 2012, one of those two years. And I went to Israel with a friend who was also, who was Israeli. And she wanted to go back to her homeland. And she went several times a year. And I was like, listen, the next time you go, I really want to come with you. And she's just like, okay. But she was just going to go visit her family in Tel Aviv. And I was like, well, if I go there, I want to make sure that I see as much okay. of Israel as possible. And so I was like, how about we do a road trip? And she's just like, sure, because I've actually never seen parts of Israel before that I would love to, even though I'm from there and grew up there. So we both fly to Tel Aviv and we rent a little red Fiat. Now, do you remember what time of year this was? Yes, <laughs> it was in the summer. Whoa. I'll get to the reason why I said, whoa. Okay. Windows down, AC blowing. <laughs> we started, we, we, I'll put it like this. I have never experienced heat like I have in Masada. Masada is a fortress right above the Dead Sea. We drove down there. That was, oh, yes. Yeah. And it was at least 118 to 120 something degrees. I've been, That yeah. heat was ferocious. And I'm, I had a headache that was booming the entire time, but because I was in such a historic, unique spot that has so much history in it, I just thugged it out. But going in the summer to some places, especially about the Dead Sea, it was so dry and oh my gosh I was like no offense but I was like if this is what hell feels like I want no parts of it <laughs> no parts at all at all I mean, that's the lowest point on earth so it's definitely a lot of heat getting trapped down there that's that's probably why I felt like it was oh H-E double hockey sticks because it was <laughs> <laughs> it was definitely hot as hotter than fish grease as I say um but yeah so my girlfriend and I started in Tel Aviv, and it was a very unique time because this is also when um, President Obama was in office. And I remember being in Tel Aviv, taking a walk by myself on the beach at night, <clears throat> and I hear um, someone say, What's the word? I think it was, um, oh shoot, I can't remember the word right now. He said to me, Manishma, that's it, Manishma, which means what's up. And I look at him and I'm looking at someone who's the same color as me. I'm a brown skinned African American woman. And I'm looking at a young man who looks 
like he's black or Ethiopian. And he's like, Manishma. And he's talking to me in Hebrew. And come to find out, I didn't know anything about this. He was an Ethiopian Jew. And so he thinks with me and my brown skin, yeah. And, you know, my eye shape being a little slanted, he thought, oh, maybe she's an Ethiopian Jew, too. So right. he comes up to me, he's like, Manishma. And I'm like, oh, I only speak English. And he goes, what's up? I'm like, oh, hi. I'm like, what's up? And I look at him and I go, you speak Hebrew? And he goes, yeah, I'm Jewish. And I'm like, wow, I was stunned. And he can tell, I was like, I've never seen a person of your skin tone I didn't know about Jewish people who were Ethiopian. He's like, yeah, I'm an Ethiopian Jew. But he was just like, yeah, I love Obama, Obama. And so we were talking about Obama and the presidency. And, and then he goes on to tell me about, I'm like, well, how do they treat Ethiopian Jews? And he was just like, oh, it's similar to how they treat African-Americans in the state. There's a lot of racism with Ethiopian Jews. And I had no idea. And so he breaks down this whole structure of how they're treated there. And it was enlightening and it was also so heartbreaking. And we spoke for maybe two hours at night and we kept in contact for a really, really long time. He was a really nice guy, but that really opened my eyes. And that was the start of the trip. After we left Tel Aviv, we went to Jerusalem and we visited the Wailing Wall and I um, brought prayers from my parents, from my best friend. How was that experience at the wall for you? Because you know, there's a separation of genders. Did that like throw you off at first? Oh my gosh. Yes. You know what? When I first, I remember like coming into the plaza and seeing the separation and I was amazed. Like, you know, to me, this is, this is me being a naive American. Everything that we do here is pretty much gelled together, men and women. Right. But there to see like such a stark separation was eye-opening to me. And they meant it. The men here and the women and children here. And so I, out of respect, obviously, I went to the women's side. You know, I went to the wall. I put my prayers in. And it was such an emotional experience because people are crying their hearts out. They are reading the Torah. They are they are in a in such a deep worship and prayer and i had never seen such a respect for religion such a like i mean i grew up you know in church you know baptist church christian church and at non-denominational at, at times but you could tell the power of god was there and to, to be surrounded with so many people who were just literally crying tears of joy because they had that connection with God was so beautiful for me. And it made me emotional. And I started crying. And I started reflecting on my life and being grateful that I can experience such a holy land and such a holy place with such holy people. And it was beautiful. Um, the interesting thing about that, while, while in Jerusalem, I booked the hotel for myself and my girlfriend. She is a Israeli Jew. And I didn't realize that they had separate quarters, a Muslim quarter, Jewish quarter, Christian quarter. I booked our hotel unknowingly in the Muslim quarter. 
And when we were driving to our hotel, she was pretty much having a nervous breakdown. And I was like, what, what is the, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? She's just like, if they see that I'm a Jewish, if they see that I'm Jewish, they're, they'll try to hurt me. They'll try to hurt me. And I'm like, no, they're not going to do that. You just look like a white girl with like red hair. Like I didn't understand the separation of quarters and the lifestyles and the at times turmoil. I'm thinking, okay, Jerusalem, I'm, you know, it's a holy land. Like even if you're of different denominations and, you know, different faiths, isn't there like a peace there? And so that whole entire night, she's freaking out. She's freaking out to the point, a person who never gets scared, now she's making me uncomfortable. So much to, I, I call all the way back to the United States and I'm like, oh my gosh, mom, like she's freaking out. Should I, should we leave? And my mom said, whatever she's comfortable with, if she's not comfortable, then you should leave. Because I was like, like, we'll be okay. No one's, no one, they can't tell that you're Jewish. You just look like a white girl with red hair. And she's like, they will know. And I had never seen my friend like that. And so I asked her, I was like, do you, they will know. yes. I was like, do you want to leave? She's like, no, we can stay they're about that life over there. And they're about that life. And so that was a really big lesson to me. Cause I usually just go places. Right. And I still kind of do that, but you have, when you're traveling with other people, you have to know their comfort zone and you know, you have to know what boundaries are for them. But I didn't know about that. I didn't know that that was that type of turmoil that it would affect my friend in a way like that. And I think you should just have honest conversations with people. Are there any do's or don'ts when you're traveling? Because had I done that, um, I would have absolutely booked a hotel in a, the quarter that she was comfortable with. But that attitude of, that you have of just when you travel, you're just going to go. Isn't that like very freeing for you as an African-American woman outside of the country? Because it's all like a rock star card, as I like to call it, you know, because you can go and you know that everybody's going to be excited to see you and accepting of you because you are somebody they only see in screens. It was kind of profound that like in your friend's homeland, she felt uncomfortable, but you in somebody else's homeland you like, I'm gonna go any and everywhere. Exactly. And that's, that's, I'm so glad you brought that up because that was exactly it. I was completely comfortable. Everyone was nice to me. I mean, people were giving me free samples when I was um, going to get the falafel and, and the, um, and the shawarma. Everyone was so giving and kind. And I'm just thinking together as a unit, we're just moving through these spaces until we got to that part. And it just wasn't the same. And so for me, it is very freeing to just be able to move and go. And I have had very, very few incidents where as an African-American woman, I have been made to feel that my life was in danger. Um, and the times I did, one in particular, I didn't think it was because I was a black person. I thought because I was a young woman out at night in a male dominated area where I shouldn't have been anyway, because I didn't know any better. I just thought I was going to a fish market and only the men were allowed at the fish market at that time of night. And so when I walk in, everybody's like, what are you doing here? So that, I put myself in that danger. It, it was very interesting to move through the land so easily and her having concerns. So we left Jerusalem and we headed down towards Haifa. And Haifa is where they have the Bahia. That's a really huge 
religion like around the is world. South of yes, it's Jerusalem? south. It's south of Jerusalem. So our our road trip started in Tel Aviv and it ended at a lot Israel, all the way at the very bottom um, by the Red Sea. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. <laughs> we went to Haifa. We saw. Um, I believe that's where they have the headquarters for the Bahia um, religion. And so those grounds were stunning. I had never heard of this religion before. Um, and it's all around the world. It was very maintained with some of the most beautiful gardens and structures and architecture that I had ever really seen. And, and that was just a really cool experience. Question, do you know a re religious book they use? I don't. The Bahia people, I would have to do more research on them, but I didn't think it was like a traditional type of religion that we're used to. Yeah, I remember seeing a name on the map, just being curious, but, oh, I, okay, with the gardens, I know what you're talking about. I've seen that photo. Yes, yes, it was so stunning. It was so stunning. They have palm trees over there like California? Their palm trees look like the original palm trees. Ours look like they might have got imported. <laughs> <laughs> those were those, those were the Jesus palm trees the, over there. The OG palm trees. <laughs> the, the OG palm trees. Gotcha. There were so many. There's so many different religious religions in a place that is so religious. You know what I'm saying? And that was interesting to see. That is true. Yeah, I thought that was fascinating. A very spiritual country. Very spiritual country for sure. But when we were on our way from Haifa down to Masada we had a checkpoint that we stopped at and the checkpoint was it was like a military checkpoint and i noticed that everyone was so young looking and my girlfriend at the time i said shosh her name is shosh i said everyone is so young and she says yes at 18 we all have to serve in the military so i had no idea that my friends served in the military She's just as small as me, you know, both young women, petite women, and she can shoot, she can go to town with the, the gun that they assigned her. I had no idea. I'm like, she's, she, yeah, full uniform. We had, we walked around with the guns. Like we had to serve almost three years. It's like, I think it's like 32 months or something like that. And I was like, Shosh, you were in the military? And she's just like, yeah, it's an automatic requirement. So when we're going through these checkpoints, I'm seeing all these really young kids coming up to our car with their guns and asking questions. And I was like, I, I was blown away. So I'm learning so much during this road trip. And I'm like, the further down we go, and, and sometimes, you know, you don't see, it's literally like a highway and it's just desert, <laughs> you know? I'm like, please don't let this car break down in the middle of nowhere. Cause we, AAA ain't gonna come get me here. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Roll it through Israel in the Fiat. Roll it through Israel in the little red Fiat, boy. I was amazed. So of course we did the Dead Sea, floated in the water, enjoyed that space. And then we went to, we were in a lot, which is by the Dead Sea. And I went scuba diving here. So this is a story, Nate, that I've, I've told you before, but the reason why I was in a lot Israel is because I was doing this road trip. And as a scuba diver, they have a lot of shipwreck diving in the Dead Sea. They have a lot of ships down there. And so I said, you know, while I'm here, I'm going to go wreck diving. Oh, wow. And mind you, I hadn't had my scuba diving certification for too long. I might've had it less than a year. So 
I go to the dive shop. And you're renting their, using their equipment. Using their equipment, using their gear. And, and for those that don't know, it's, it's great to, it's, it's exciting to go diving, but as you dive more and more, you start to get, you, you buy your own gear because it's more reliable and you're more comfortable. Exactly. Exactly. It is very imperative and important that you have your own gear, especially the BCD, which is the breathing control device. Like that is the key part. And that, <laughs> yeah, I'll get to that. So <laughs> I, <laughs> I pick a dive master. One thing about me, I'm kind of spoiled. Like I don't like big group dives. I like to do private dives, me and a dive master. Cause I'm going to need all your attention while I'm down there under the ocean where there are animals that are bigger than me that can kill me. And there are animals that I can't even see that could probably kill me too. So I'm going to need you to be, only <laughs> you know what, whatever. <laughs> I need you to be right back. Me. I might need to hold your hand at some point. And plus, you know, sometimes it takes me some time to equalize my ears and I don't want to hold people up. So let me just be leisurely as I'm descending. Yeah. So I picked this young lady. I think she had over like 200 dives, but she had recently became a dive master. And that makes a difference. We go diving and it's a shore dive. <laughs> we go shore diving. Okay. Now, most dives I do are right off the boat into the water. Super easy. Shore diving is a different ballgame. You literally leave from the shore into the water. Oh. And gear is so heavy. So you're getting in the water. You have to put your fins on backwards. Go backwards into the water. Waves are crashing on you. And it's a lot of pebbles in, at this, this area. It wasn't like sand. So I'm like walking on like a bunch of little pebbles trying to go backwards until I'm in the water that's deep enough that I can like start like start descending so we're descending we're descending and we go to the wreck and we're exploring the wreck it's beautiful you remember what type of ship it was yeah i have the exact name um let me see now i like got my certification in bonaire i was doing shore dives as well so i relate to that experience because i was used to just flipping off the back of the boat but then yeah. you have to walk into the water and then you just drop off there's the reef wall and it's like wow yeah wow <laughs> the red dive that i did was called the satil s-a-t-i-l okay and so we are exploring the wreck i'm swimming all through it i'm in the captain's area swimming down in in beneath like looking at everything around me, super, it's kind of creepy, but beautiful. And all of a sudden I pull in air and it's like, I make this noise. It's like, and I don't feel any air. <gasps> I do it again. I try to breathe. No air. I did that three times. Oh my gosh. My tank is not delivering air to my BC, to my mouth. How many meters underwater are you at this point? I'm at least... I want to say 30 something feet down. What? That's insane. Bruh. Bruh. The, I remember looking up to the surface and as a scuba diver, you're not allowed to just shoot up to the surface. You'll get something called the bends where the um, carbon dioxide, I believe will burst in your bloodstream and your, you know, your bloodstream. And so it's a sure way to become injured or die um, people die from it. And I was, I remember looking up and saying, there's no way I can swim to the top that fast. And I wasn't able to hold my breath that long as I am now. And I said, Oh my gosh, my mom is going to have to come and get my body from Israel. Wow. And I said, 
seriously, like my life, my life flashed before my eyes. And the first thing I said was like, oh my gosh, my parents are going to have to get me. Because, you know, I travel a lot. I'm very adventurous. And my parents have always said, if anything ever happens to you anywhere in the world, like we're on our way. And I was like, I never wanted that to come true for my mom. So I was like, I can't have that happen. So I hold my breath, right? And I start swimming towards my dive master, like ferociously. Oh, okay. And I snatch her secondary. And I, and I take out mine and I put her secondary breathing apparatus in my mouth and I start breathing. And she's looking at me and she's like, what's going on? And I'm like, no air. I'm doing the sign where you cut across your neck. I don't have any air. I don't have any air. And like, she's, my eyes are so big and she's shaking me like to calm down, calm down. And I'm like, no, I don't have any air. Now, mind you, my GoPro is going the entire time. So I have this footage. You can hear me going, mm, 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 because I can't breathe underwater. Yeah. You see my GoPro move around. It's the shots are obviously not very good because I'm not concerned about filming. I'm concerned about being able to breathe. And so this is why I want to, for the people that don't scuba dive, the secondary, every scuba diver has a primary BCB and a secondary. So if, if a uh, situation, if your dive partner runs out of air, then that you guys can share the air from that same tank. So in that moment, Kelly went over to a dive master so she could breathe from her dive master's BCD and get air. Exactly. Exactly. So come to find out while I'm breathing off of her secondary, she's taking mine. She puts it in her mouth. She sees no air is coming out. So she drops it. She goes to check my tank. We do a buddy check at the very beginning of every dive where you stick your back down and you stick the tank underneath the water to see if any bubbles are escaping. That means it's not tight enough. We did this buddy check. Well, while we're down in a shipwreck dive, she has to tighten up my tank. I had been leaking air the entire time from the shore all the way down to the shipwreck. I was losing air. Now, mind you, I was checking my instruments. And so I'm thinking, just because I'm losing air is because I'm breathing. Like, I didn't think anything was alarming about that, but I was also a new diver. So the things that I look at now, maybe I'm just paranoid. I really, I, I've learned as a diver, I don't use a lot of air. I usually have a lot of air when I come back up. Yeah. And I've had several dive masters say, oh wow, were you breathing down there? Cause you didn't use much air. So the fact that I was, I had lost that much air, I thought that that was normal at the time and it was not for a diver like myself. So she tightens up my tank and she puts my BC back in her mouth and all of a sudden it's working. And we're doing all this underwater, guys. We're sign languaging with each other and she right. goes to hand it back to me and I go, uh-uh, uh-uh. And she's <laughs> like, it's working. She shakes me underwater, my shoulders. It's working. So I look at her like, I'm gonna kill you when we get up there. I take it and all of a sudden it's fine. And so after she calms me down, she's literally using the sign language to just breathe, just breathe underwater, which is taking two hands and pushing downwards towards your torso. And she goes, do you want to go up? Do you want to go up? And so I'm like, I'm breathing. I'm like, I'm in Israel. I'm in the, I'm in the Red Sea. I'm at a shipwreck dive. I can, I can hang out a little longer. I can hang out so a little longer. <laughs> we finished the wreck dive. It's amazing. I live. We come up. Listen, I look at that footage. I can see that uh, the bubbles is coming out <laughs> the entire time. Bubbles is coming out my tank. 
So this tells me that you have to really be on it when you're diving, when you're doing anything with someone else. When you got to check your people's stuff, check it and make sure it's right. Because I had a complete stranger who didn't know me from Peter or Paul and didn't have to necessarily care that much neglect me as a dive master and she was a new dive master so not just because somebody has 200 dives doesn't mean that they're an amazing dive master and she was new and so from now on i also learned when person's like oh i'm a dive master well how long have you been a dive master because <laughs> in my experience right. across the entire world in the biblical sea <laughs> <laughs> uh, i almost lost my entire life that was a lot that's as far that's the farthest point you can go in israel is a lot was that the last stop on the road trip <laughs> It was a grand finale like nothing else. So I feel like that trip, I learned so much about myself. I <laughs> learned about Ethiopian Jews. I learned about the different quarters in Jerusalem and how people move around them. I learned how, you know, my friend's religion and her culture, she felt affected when she was in a place that didn't practice that and was devoutly against it. I learned about the fact that everyone over 18 has to serve in the military. I mean, and just the historical aspect of it, going to the Bahia, see, learning about them, going to Masada, the Dead Sea, the Red Sea, almost losing my life. I mean, that was an intense seven-day road trip. I've never been on a road trip like it. And, and I'd do it again because I'll go back. <laughs> That's awesome. And that's, that's the beauty of travel. That's why we go to these places that are unknown with an expectation. And then we always learn something new. Our initial expectation is not what we end with. And then we have these lifelong experiences that shapes our personality, builds these connections with the people that we travel with or met even along the way. Out of the seven years that I've known you, that's the first time I heard that story. I got, I got many stories and lots of tricks up my sleeve, Nate. Oh, I know, I know. I, I know you're not short on things to talk about. <laughs> not at all. Me and Nate have been everywhere together, for, the, for those who don't know. I mean, we should just break it down real quick. Yeah, we've, so we got Toronto. We went to an island. What was that? Curacao, Peru. Alaska. Alaska, yes. Brazil. Brazil. I mean, gosh, dang, you about, you about 10 of my passport stamps. Holy yeah, smokes. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of places. And we just getting started. Just getting started. The adventure continues, even during a global pandemic. You have to find a new adventure, find a new way. And this is the time to go off the beaten path because you ain't supposed to be by nobody anyway. <laughs> right. So that was a great personal story. But now that you are Kelly Edwards and you had your TV show, what was, what was like your favorite episode from your series? I think the one that I was most challenged on as far as belief system was when I went to Sulawesi in Indonesia to learn about the Tarajan people. Okay. And if, for those of you who do not know about Sulawesi or the Tarajan people, they have a very unique way in which they go about death. So when a family member dies, unlike how we do in Western society where we give the family member to a mortuary and they take care of everything, all within two weeks usually. People in Taraja keep the family member in their home for months up to 20 plus years until they can afford a $100,000 funeral. And that's $100,000 in US money. And their money, it's like a million rupiah. 
And that's why it determines on how long you have the person in your, in your house. Because if you don't have the money to do that funeral, you have, to, it's a rite of passage. They're considered still alive, even though in the physical form to you and I, they may be dead, but to those family members, they're still alive until they have this funeral. So they will bring the family member in the special room in their home, three meals a day. And not like, here's a bowl of rice, and then I'm going to give you the, the same bowl of rice a couple hours later. Fresh plates, right? Every meal, they bring in cigarettes, they bring in money, they talk to them, they treat them as if they are still alive until they have this funeral. So when we went and I met with two families, one family, the gentleman had his uncle in the house for almost four years. And I remember looking at the body and looking at my director like, I think this body just needs to be buried because they have a really good preservation system, but that one wasn't done as well. And so it, it looked like he should have already had been buried just by our standards. What about and the smell? Smelled like nothing. Wow. There was no smell whatsoever. They do a process. It's like a, a mummifying process, but okay. he was decomposing. He was to the point where he, he had decomposed, but you could still see the, the bone structure his hair still, everything. And so I was like, holy smokes. And I remember that episode, my eyes are so big. And everyone commented on, your eyes are so big. I'm like, yeah, because I had never seen anything like this before. And the family that we mainly featured, that father had been dead, I believe, six to nine months. So he looked like a mummy. Like he still had the skin. It was like tight and things like that. But I remember what threw me off so much about that is like the little right. granddaughter. She was like three years old. We're in the middle of filming and she runs in and she puts a little bag of coins on her grandfather's casket and talks to him and runs out. And I'm like, this is normal for them to have their family member in their home. And what was so beautiful about that What's going on here? is I feel like we have a hard time grieving because when yeah. they pass away, if it wasn't something that you knew that was happening for a long time, you can have that process. But if it was sudden and all of a sudden that person's just not in your life anymore, we have a hard time moving past that. For them, because the family member is in their home for such a long time, they're able to grieve. They're able to let go and to understand. And so for me, culturally, that was a completely different experience. And when they have this funeral, they will, it's like a huge block party. People from around the yeah. world, entire villages come from miles around. There are like a thousand people at the funeral and they have to feed a thousand people. So they kill water buffalo to, they have two water buffalo fights. And whichever water buffalo wins, they will sacrifice that water buffalo because that is the water yes. buffalo that is going to shepherd the person into the afterlife. Even though that part was a little harsh for me to witness, and I actually didn't really care to see that part, to be honest with you, I would kind of turn or be gone. Oh, wow. Um, it's brutal. It's really hard. None of the food goes to waste. Like, mm -hmm. they take the animal and they feed the entire village. That's a brutal process to see an animal kill. I've seen it before. It's tough. After that, the water buffalo is sacrificed. They take his horns and they put it on the top of the house that the person passed. And it's a family home. So you can see all these horns and there's like 60 of them. So that means they've done this in this family's generation like 60 times. And you see the horns just going up and they just keep adding the horns until it's like covered up an entire roof. That's incredible. It was incredible. And, and just to be able to interact with the family members, 
to be able to cook the food with the family members to help sort it. Um, to, I dressed in their garb. They had me participate in the funeral where I walked around with all of his granddaughters, his wife and his daughters. And we walked around with like this red cloth veil around the entire village. They dressed me in the garb and I was a part of it. So I think that was really significant for me to experience because it's so, it's like a 180 from everything that I Yeah, did. that's that's great. I'm glad you, you know, you had that experience, but it's even better that it's documented on the Travel Channel that people could tune in and watch it on demand right now. Yeah, yeah. So uh, <laughs> what projects are you working on for the future? Anything in production or any? Any juice, you, any tea you want to spill or what you got coming out to be on the lookout for? Well, I have lots of things going on. I can't talk about everything now, but I can share that I have a new podcast that will be launching with Travel and Leisure Magazine. Nice. The podcast is called Let's Go Together. It is about diversity and inclusion in the world and not in a in a generic sense of what I feel like people are kind of trying to wash down the phrase diversity and inclusion. And I think that I am talking to a lot of different walks of life. It's not just race. It's race, it's gender, it's age, it's ability, mobility, disease, mental. I mean, we just touch on so many beautiful different things. And I've literally talked to over 20 people around the world. And it was, it's a project I'm very proud of because it pushed me as a journalist on connecting with people beyond a surface level. Shooting adventure travel, you just kind of do the thing. It's very physical. But as a journalist, to connect with people and to get them to share that part of their world that you may not be familiar with is really, really powerful. So that's awesome. Got a book deal for my children's book series. So that's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. I got some more TV stuff coming up. <laughs> the party don't stop. The party don't stop. Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm always working. That's what that's who we do as people in our space. We don't get to fill out a job application. You know, we go create a story, we make a story, and and we bring it to the people. Self-starters. Absolutely. So I, we all going to reach our breaking point where we got to get out and travel because that's what we do. So where is the first place you're going to head once this pandemic is over? Man. It's very interesting. I want to just go to Italy and get a little cottage, drink some wine, Ooh. walk on the street, have some good food, be around people, put on a dress. I, completely opposite of what people would expect of me. <laughs> I would love to just go chill out somewhere. But there's, a, there's another, I'm also really longing to be back in a very adventurous space. I'm going to explore a lot of the U.S. because I think there'll be some time before we can like just explore the world freely. Mm -hmm. And I've been around the world and back, but there's so much in the States that I have not seen or experienced, particularly the national parks. And so I think I'm going to hit those up. Ooh, I like that. I, um, I like to ask all my guests this question. What is your travel spirit animal? <laughs> Let me see a travel spirit animal. Yes. I like the cheetah. Ooh. They're stealth. They're beautiful. Mm -hmm. They can roll up on you. <laughs> and there's something about them that they handle their business. They're an animal that's beautiful and smaller, but very dangerous. I like the way you look at yourself. Five, five, three, and ferocious. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So me and Cheetah, we the, we the same thing. 
<laughs> awesome. So before we go, I had let a few people know that I was talking to you, some of my IG followers, and I got a question from one of my followers, and they want to know. They said, what are some things you always take with you on a trip? I always bring a scarf. I always bring my sunglasses. I always have combat boots or hiking boots. Okay. And I have an adventure outfit, meaning my infamous tank top with my cargo pants. Like an adventure outfit is always in the mix. And then I have some gear that I like to bring. Nate, you know this, my Garmin InReach Explorer, which is a device that if I'm in the sticks and I need help, I push a button and a helicopter will come rescue me. <laughs> and my GoPro. Listen, if I never had a platform, if I've never on TV or in a magazine or any other things that people have seen me in, it's important for my future generations, my great-great-grandchildren, to know that they had me in their lineage doing the things that I've done to encourage them to go beyond what I've done. So a GoPro for me is so necessary. I, I just like to document my experiences. Even if no one sees it for the light of day, just to know that it's there, I believe it's important to uh, leave that part behind for my legacy, even if no one else ever sees it. So a GoPro is probably number one on the list. It's always in the bag. Legacy is important. And it's great to have those tools help you uh, document the, your journey so you can share it with the world. And that's what we do is travel personalities, influences. It's been good talking with you, catching up Kelly and introducing my audience to you more to get some more insights to Kelly Set Go. So good luck with all your projects. Thank I hope you. you. Come back and see us again and look forward to our next adventure. Sounds good. See you out there. Social, social distancing. Tell people your Instagram handle. Sure. My Instagram handle is at Kelly Set Go. That's K E L L E. E-E-S-E-T-G-O. Don't forget them E's, y'all. Kelly with two E's. Kelly with two E's. All right. Thanks, Kelly. Thank you. Ciao. Now, the new normal report. Cruise ships plan to start operating in July. However, there is a growing list of ports of call that will not welcome cruise ships for a while. Australia extended its ban from June to September. Closer to the states, the Cayman Islands are closed till September and Seychelles isn't taking any chances and has shut down their port until 2022. If you have a cruise booked or plan on taking advantage of upcoming deals, double check with the country's port of call to make sure you're allowed to disembark. And that is the new normal. Final call for flight 103 to Tel Aviv. Thank you for escaping with me today. Be sure to share this podcast with your friends and follow me on Instagram at Worldwide Nate. Internets, until next time, stay safe and adventure accordingly. This has been a 31 Dogwood and Tasty Shop Media production with production sound design by Wine Designs Media. Brought to you by Entertainment Speakers Bureau.